to you from KZSU at Stanford University. This is What Would Your Mother Say? Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Susan Morris. Here in the studio with me is my panel, students Jackie and Claudia, and sitting next to me is the other mom this week, Mary. Welcome, everyone. Our topic for the first half of today's show is depression. Studies show that a growing number of young people suffer from this debilitating disease. On the phone to talk to us about depression is Dr. Peter Kramer, author of Listening to Prozac and Against Depression. He is one of the top experts on the subject. Dr. Kramer, welcome to What Would Your Mother Say? I'd like to start by asking you about the basics. Can you describe for us exactly what is depression? I think depression is the thing you know it is when you see it. It's uh, this very debilitating state in which people have trouble experiencing pleasure, uh, mustering energy. Um, they have trouble with sleep and appetite, often with concentration and memory. They may feel guilty far out of proportion to uh, you know, what is merited by what they've done. They may be suicidal. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, I, I think it's one of these convincing states, and when you see someone in it, you're, you're aware that something is quite wrong with them. Well, why is depression so often misdiagnosed or poorly treated? Well, uh, you know, that is one of the great problems and issues that I think primary care doctors have so much to look at and so much uh, physical illness to deal with, and they traditionally have been uncomfortable with this. And I think in addition, depression in the past was quite hard to treat, so it was one of these things that was pushed to the side. Uh, and I think also that there are groups of people, there are subgroups of patients who are very embarrassed to talk about uh, they're just not bucking up and doing well. So it's one of these diseases that interferes with its own treatment in a way. So, Dr. Kramer, hi there. My name is Jackie. I'm one of the student panelists. And uh, listening to you talk about depression, saying that previously it was hard to treat, I assume that you are saying that depression should be treated through um, some kind of medication. Well, the best treatment, we think, is a combination of medication and psychotherapy. And almost any of the standard psychotherapies seems to work. Most psychotherapies that have been tested uh, work. That is a new interest in cognitive behavioral therapy, but no evidence that that's better than other ones. Uh, and then, yes, the medications uh, are effective as well. And it's not that older medications weren't effective. They were, but they were more complicated to use, so they were mostly used uh, by or they were used more often by psychiatrists, and I think now these other medications are, are used more by internists and uh, other primary care doctors, so there's, there's broader treatment of depression. Uh, this is Mary, the other mother. Uh, is depression, uh, does it run across all cultures, all ages, all races, you know, pretty much the same, or is it found more in certain groups? It, it seems to be pretty much the same. There was an enormous study about 10 years ago which was underwritten by uh, the uh, World Bank along with the World Health Association and carried out by the Harvard School of Public Health. And they looked at developed countries, developing countries, and they were looking at all diseases to say where ought we to put our money, where could we give people a better life. And to their surprise, whether it was in developed or developing nations, very near the top of the list and really at the top of the list was depression in terms of the disabling diseases. They were looking at the number of good days of life you're robbed of. And for depression, they were only looking at these very severe acute episodes. So they were really su surprised to get this outcome. The only thing higher than depression in terms of the number of good days it steals was a cluster of infantile diarrheal diseases. So maybe 30 diseases, diseases where you die, you know, often in the first 7 or 14 days of life. The problem with depression is it begins young it's chronic, it recurs, and it starts recurring more frequently if, it, if it's left untreated. Uh, so it looked like a big problem across the board, and that's true in this country as well. It's across all social classes and across the races. Does it work that, um, that you can people live a whole life of depression, or do, does it go in bouts? It goes in bouts. You know, a bout of depression may last uh, nine months or a year. But usually people are left with residual symptoms. So somebody may have, I sort of mentioned the cluster of symptoms that we think about when we think about depression, but they may come out of an episode and just be left with a decreased ability to experience 
experience pleasure, but now they're sleeping and eating uh, well, and their concentration is good. So, they, but they may have a sort of flattening of their experience of pleasure, and then another episode may begin. Once you've had a few episodes, you start doing badly. So that if someone's had a few episodes of depression, the odds that you know, that they'll be in an episode of depression when you interview them on a random day later in life are very high. Dr. Kramer, this is Jackie again, one of the student panelists. Um, so uh, interesting what you're saying about depression being such a debilitating factor in developing and developed countries, because depression as a term is not particularly old. You'd think if it was such an incredibly debilitating disease that, you know, it would have been in our vocabulary for a very, very long time. I know that melancholia has been around for a while, but um, and I'm just a student, but why is it then if depression is such a serious thing um, that we're just talking about it today? I, I guess is treatment part of it? Or, well, you know, melancholy, or you know, this disorder of the of the bile. You know, melancholy is black, right. black bile. It goes back as far as medical history goes. It goes back to Hippocrates. So that something like depression has been recognized through all of human history. Now, it was more of a grab bag term. So what we call manic depression was part of melancholy and probably some, uh, you know, gastrointestinal disorders and, uh, you know, that were, uh, were, were, were lumped in. I mean, there were lots of symptoms that were melancholic symptoms, but uh, something like depression has been recognized really as long as there have been human beings. And if you look at 19th century romantic literature, it's full of references to uh, what we would consider depression, and people really just didn't function well. Uh, now, they also didn't live as long as we live in some of the, you know, yet earlier uh, centuries, and uh, because this is one of these recurrent accumulative diseases, you know, you start seeing more if you if you uh, have a population that lives longer. Uh, but it's it's not a new phenomenon at all, and it's been part of medicine. It's something that doctors have written about. How do you treat depression? Uh, you know, and it has bursts of interest, great interest in depression in, in the Renaissance, for instance. So if you look at Hamlet's uh, melancholy, or, and there are lots of plays about uh, melancholics in, in the Renaissance. Uh, you know, if you look at the romantic era of poetry, it's, it's not something that's been newly discovered. Uh, I think, you know, once you have treatments like medications, you start subdividing illnesses a little bit so that you use different medicines for mania than you do for, for depression. Uh, back in the era of psychotherapy also, I mean, most things that weren't psychotic illnesses were just called neurosis. Uh, so there was less, you know, less need to subdivide when there is only one treatment. Lots of people are afraid of taking antidepressants because they think there's a strong stigma at, associated with doing so. What, what would you say to those people? Stigma is one of these complicated issues. Um, uh, I think that, you, you know, you said there's less stigma, so we see more depression on campus. I think it's a funny kind of change where there's more of a medical stigma and less of a moral stigma. We don't think people are necessarily bad or weak as much in, you know, on sophisticated college campuses when they're depressed, but we might think, gee, they're, maybe there's a genetic problem. I wouldn't want them to have my, chil have my children with them. So they're, they're, they're just, the stigma is really a shifting uh, concept. But uh, the truth is that Depression looks bad. It looks bad biologically. It looks like there are uh, unfavorable changes in the brain that accompany depression. And our sense is that you do very well to treat it early and vigorously. And, uh, uh, you know, our hope is that discussions like this lead people to come in and say, you know, I had a sense for a while something's very wrong, or to say to a friend, you know, you really are not doing well. You ought to seek help uh, so that we can interrupt these episodes. Do, does depression truly run in families? Is it is it inherited? It, it runs in families. The heritability of depression looks to be about like the heritability of diabetes, the common forms of diabetes. It's about, uh, you know, 38 40% genetic, which leaves a lot for the environment. Now, some of that environment is sort of hard to define. It's going to turn out to be things like things that go on in the uterus uh, before you're born. But some of the environment clearly are the ordinary traumas that we think about, like childhood sexual abuse, you know, is the one that comes up most strongly in the data, and stressors like uh, job loss and divorce uh, later in life. So, yes, partly genetic. And there's some families where there are really heavy clusters of depression or depression and alcoholism. Hi, Dr. Kramer. This is Lauren. I'm another one of the student panel members. 
But going back to this topic of stigma, it's interesting we talk about stigma. A lot of the more, I guess, creative figures of our generation have been known to be, you know, famous uh, depressive figures, I guess. Uh, and so has have there been any studies conducted on, I guess, the relation between creative energies and depression? Yes. I mean, this is one of the big topics in against depression, what I call the romance, not just I, other people, the romanticization of depression. So that, you know, the, the ancient Greeks, followers of Aristotle, uh, asked why it was that people who were eminent in certain fields, and they were politics and oratory and poetry uh, and war, military uh, people, uh, were often melancholic. And there, if you really look at the examples, largely it was mania. I think they were people who were very dynamic and was probably, you know, on the verge of manic depression and then actually became uh, psychotic, uh, you know, and uh, did very strange things. Uh, uh, later, later on, some of these were historical figures, some were mythical figures. Uh, but, you know, because of that, there, because Aristotle was so highly regarded and it was thought that these texts were Aristotle's, this comes into the Renaissance, and that is part of the reason you get uh, these very sensitive, brilliant figures like Hamlet. Uh, and there becomes to be a cultural association of depression and creativity. The studies on creativity are interesting. You probably make a much better case for manic depression, which seems to be a separate disorder, and creativity and or productivity of a number of, of types uh, before the disease gets very bad. And some things like epilepsy. Depression is really, if there's an association, it's, it's low on the list, hard to sort out. Once you get rid of these other conditions, you know, you're not left with much favorable to say about depression. We've all felt low at times, um, but how do you know when it's just your regular day-to-day -day sadness, or how can you tell the difference between that and actual depression? Uh, people who are just sad often feel hopeful again the next morning. People who are depressed often do worse in the morning, so they wake up really, uh, you know, unable to face the day and may actually do a little better as the day goes on. We've run out of time, Dr. Kramer. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking with thank us. Thank you. What a wonderful topic. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Peter Kramer, author of Against Depression. Coming up, the panel's thoughts on depression. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call at 650-723-9010 or send us an email at whatwouldyourmothersay at kzsu.stanford.edu. I'm Susan Morris. You're listening to What Would Your Mother Say? We'll be right back. Here with me in the studio are students Claudia, Jackie, and Lauren. And sitting alongside with me is the other mother, Mary Morrison. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about depression, growing numbers of pe people each year are being diagnosed with this disease. The question that I have for the panel is, how have you been affected by depression, either directly or indirectly? For example, have any of you had a friend who is dealing with or has dealt with severe depression? Mary? Uh, yes, right. I had uh, two people that were very close to me who had severe depression. Uh, neither one of them um, wanted to have any kind of treatment, which was a problem. They wouldn't even recognize that they were ill. It was all, you know, it was all, I'll get over it. I'll be fine. How long you did know? it last? Long, length, length, long time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely a long time. And how long, and how did it, did it affect your relationship with them? Right, because they they would go off and be, um, they would be moody. That's not the right word. They would be reclusive and pull back. And at times when it wasn't helpful to our relationship, they would just go off and be by themselves perhaps. Or, you know, when we were all ready to go somewhere, do something, and they would just be not willing to go through with the plans or whatever that the idea was. And it's they, it's they, hard to stay with a friendship. Snap back at people. Yeah. Snap back inappropriately when someone would say an innocuous comment or you know, you couldn't count on their them being there in a normal full range of emotion for you. What did you do or not do to help them? I wasn't very helpful. Well it's a I was, I was not isn't it? well and I wasn't successful in convincing either one of them that because why should they believe me when I told them they should go get help? I mean, I'm not an expert, you know. It was uh, it became sort of an issue, like just drop the subject, you know. It's my own business, that kind of thing. Anyone else at the table had some issues, Claudia? Yes, I had a friend who went through a bout of depression after a friend of ours passed away, and it was very difficult because we were all dealing with the pain of having lost a friend, and we tried to get out and do as many things or as our normal activities as we could, but she was just 
not having it at all. She never wanted to go eat with us, or if she did, she would change her mind last minute, and we'd be joking in the car. She was very quiet. It was very difficult. Very, very difficult. What happened in the end? Did you did you all sort of stay start to stay away from her? Or? No, not at all. Because we knew what she was going. Th- we were going through a similar experience. And she just took it the hardest. So we just try to give her as much support as possible. I think it's hard though when people shut you down to to keep reaching out to them. Jackie, what's well, been your yeah, experience? It's interesting that you guys are saying that it was so hard for you because I'm kind of drawn to depressed people. There's something very alluring about that person, you know, who, you know, they seem kind of like the suffering artist. There's just so much boiling underneath them. If only you could reach them. Um, so it's it creates a Courtney this Love Syndrome, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the comparison, Lauren. I really appreciate it. I, I wonder, though, if, if there isn't an attraction. I mean, look at these heroes in literature. You know, Hamlet for example, was certainly a prime example of a depressed young man, and there is something what not sexy, but oh no, I think I think there is something kind of sexy. You picture that art. I just picture this art student dressed in all black, you know, who's just creating these beautiful things to show his despair. Oh my God! Ugh. Yeah, but lots of that's just phony. You think? Oh yeah. I mean, I, mean, I don't think a really, I don't think a really depressive person would give that much attention to their wardrobe, for one thing. Well, they wouldn't be out trying to impress you with how they feel. It's too much of an internal experience. Well, I want to ask people how depression manifests itself. I think, and it's come out in, in, in our discussion, that people get withdrawn and disengaged, but uh, someone told me about a close person in her family who gets angry. That that's how this person yes. shows very critical, not only of themselves but of everybody around them, and that's a clear sign that the, that um, this person is depressed. Has that ever been? Have you ever yes. noticed that, Mary? It sounds like you have. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, some of my relatives have dealt with this issue, mm-hmm. and yes, that was that would be, especially if you push them to try to get them to to get out of in, in your simplistic manner, try to get out of the phrase they were in. They would lash back. because, and, and it was appropriate, maybe, because they couldn't just quit feeling the way they were feeling. You now, know. have any of you um, experienced this stigma where people are reluctant to deal with it? I'm thinking that certainly people of my mother's generation did not want to publicly admit that they were depressed. That might indicate that you were sick, mentally sick, and that was something that they didn't want to admit to. Claudia, have you had people resist this? Uh, yeah, I had another friend who, I mean, she came from a very difficult background anyway, but she specifically said she didn't want to take any medication because she would be a freak. And it was hard because her behavior was extreme suicidal behavior. So there was really not much her family or friends could do because she didn't want to see a psychologist or psychiatrist, didn't want to take medications, and didn't want to get any help for the situation. Now, I have a question to ask you. Uh, you know, I'm fairly, oh, yeah, everybody takes antidepressants. And, Mary, you said earlier, well, that's not necessarily true. Obviously, I have kind of a cavalier attitude about it. But I think there are a lot of people who, if someone told you that they were on antidepressants, how would this impact the way you feel toward them, how you view this person? And be honest. Depended how good their art was. <laughs> she, likes, she likes depressive artists. You're right, exactly. All you depressive so, artists So this out would there. mean you'd want to date with them or, or, or get involved. But, but seriously, does someone relinquish some kind of prestige or authority? I'm sitting here trying to think if I feel differently than if they told me that they have to take heart medicine or if they have to take epileptic uh, you know, yeah. in medicine, so they don't have to have seizures or something. I'm trying to analyze my own thoughts and whether I would feel differently if they told me they were taking antidepressants. I don't think so, but I think I it mean, would. You think so? Uh, well, I think personally, it, it it might. You you look at someone, and as um, you know, there is the idea. If you, for example, I mean, you you all when you're looking at a potential um, spouse or mate, um, you might say, oh, ooh, you know, they're they have a depressive uh, gene in them, and do I want to aggravate my own gene or? <laughs> I add- think. I think it might affect, I guess, conversation because if they were happy around you or you made them happy, you might feel like it was cheating. You know, it'd be like telling jokes to stone people. I mean, the laughing <laughs> wouldn't really be the same because, you know, they're on something that would make them laugh anyways or be happy anyways. I guess is the parallel I'm drawing here. I'm not sure that antidepressants actually make you happy. I think it makes you better able to function. Well, I know, but in my mind, yeah. that's what I think. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's just the association I have. Yeah. 
yeah, what prejudices um, have you seen toward people taking antidepressants, Claudia? Well, personally, when friends tell me that they're taking any antidepressant or any medication, I have no, I still see them the same way. I, it's just like they told me they bought a new pair of shoes. Oh, big deal. Uh, you're still my friend. You're still the same person I met you as. I don't. I don't believe that that makes a big difference. I don't know, though. If someone were to say they, they took heart medicine, and let's say they're 50 or they're 25 years old, they're sick, right? I mean, oops, they have heart problems. They're either kind of young to be having those problems or, oh, they're kind of old to be having, you know, and they're having these kinds of problems. So it is kind of natural when you hear someone's taking a drug to go, hmm. You know what's weird about that is that I was just thinking, I was comparing this to ADD in my head. And if someone tells me they're taking drugs for ADD, I'm like, good for you. That's great. But if they're telling me they're taking drugs for depression, I hate to say it because I consider myself pretty open-minded. But I think, hmm, maybe they can't manage themselves emotionally. Maybe they are, you know, maybe it's a crutch for them developmentally. I hate to say that because I, I, ju I just realized it right as we were talking. I would have that reaction. You know, this realization came to me as I as I thought more and more about the subject and about people taking drugs and, and everything, and I realized that I, too, have, have prejudices about it. I like to think that I don't. I have a quick story to tell about my mother who, as she got elderly, really suffered from severe depression as her dementia came, came more apparent. And I said to her um, that... Mom, you know, there, you can take antidepressants and it would make you feel better. And she said, no, I don't want to do that. And I said, well, you know, you get sad. I mean, I've been sad, you know, when my kids went off to college. I was kind of sad about it. And she said, well, honey, why don't you take antidepressants? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, touche. Here I thought my mother was losing it, but she still hadn't lost her sharpness in mind. <laughs> well, you have to talk about yeah, whether well, it's situ situational depression. I, mean, I used to work in it with a lot of elderly people. And I talked to this one lady, and her husband had died, her sister had died, she'd had to move out of her house. You know, she was living in a place she didn't like, and she said, I'm feeling sad. And I and, and, uh, was seeing her because she was losing her sight. Because that's the, the agency I worked for dealt with people who were losing their sight. Well, this woman, in my mind, had every right to feel sad. I mean, oh, yeah. for by every standard. I don't think that's the same thing at all as being clinically depressed. You know, I mean, she was going through a very rough patch and mm -hmm. had every right to those emotions. I think and, you know, she didn't need to be drugged or take drugs for it, particularly. Maybe that's the problem with depression is that there are two things going on. You You feel very sad sometimes, and then you can feel very depressed and at some point maybe they're the same feeling but the depression goes on and maybe that's where the stigma gets attached to it that's what i was thinking too because you know situational depression that that to me is very different than just like a chemical imbalance yes. and if someone's taking medication to correct a correction uh, a chemical imbalance then i kind of understand but if they just have a lot of stuff going on in their life, that, you know, I don't want to be involved with that person because I don't, you know, I don't need that drama in my life. I have enough drama on my own. Lauren, any thoughts on this subject? Any have you seen any um, uh, behavior changes in your friends when they've been depressed? You know, I, I can't say that I've noticed really any clinical depression. You, you notice people getting sad, you know, when bad things happen to them. But, you know, I maybe I've just been fortunate enough to not you know, have that happen to anyone. Maybe boys or guys aren't quite as verbal about their emotional ups and downs. Yeah, Do you because, think that yeah, might be part point. of it? I think that guys, it could very much be looked on as a weakness. And, I mean, mm -hmm. though guys, even in modern society, are very guarded about their weaknesses because, yes. you know, in a certain way, that's sort of you're admitting that you're less evolutionarily, like, Fit. Fit, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. Uh, than everyone else, which is a, still a very hard thing to admit for a guy. Yeah. And particularly from certain uh, subcultures, certain ethnic groups. you got to be macho. you got to be tough. you got to be, you know, on top of yourself. All the, you know, and things under control. Well, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, the art of the compliment. A look at the best way to, to give one and the best way to accept one. I'm Susan Morris. You're listening to What Would Your Mother Say? We'll be right back. Thank you. 
is what would your mother say hi i'm susan morris welcome to the show our topic is the art of the compliment on the surface nothing could be nicer than getting a compliment but it's usually more complicated than that for example who's giving the compliment and why what's the story behind the compliment is something expected in return is it overdue or maybe overdone Lots of questions, and I have lots of questions for the panel. Sitting with me are my students, Lauren, Claudia, and Jackie, and the other mother, Mary Morrison. All right, well, don't you love me calling you my students? <laughs> you are my students. You're like my kids, right? <laughs> Except you don't talk back. Uh, at least not, not in front of not me. On air. Yeah, <laughs> not on air. Not on air. Okay, well, what types of compliments do you have the hardest time accepting? I'm trying to, what are generally a hard compliment to accept? Yes, Laura. A hard compliment to accept is where someone makes a direct comparison to themselves in making the compliment. So they say, like, you're so much better than me. And then, you know, you can qualify that at this, you know, better looking, you know. And it's sort of, it's hard to respond to that because, you know, what what do you say? And you feel like they're going way beyond sort of the the bounds of something like that. You know, so involving yourself is direct comparison. That's very true, especially, I think, a lot with girls. That's very hard because you don't know if they're fishing for compliments. Yeah. So you don't know if to say, oh, no, not at all. Your body is much more shapely than mine. <laughs> oh, or if they're saying they're being really honest and you should just say thank you. Because by saying thank you, are you saying, yes, your body is worse than mine? I mean, yeah. like. <laughs> yeah. And for our listeners, you may not know, but but I don't know, Claudia, how often that happens to you because you have a pretty awesome figure. So that must be so awkward for you. <laughs> um, by the way, listeners out there, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call at 650-723-9010. The fifth caller today is going to get sent a book called Very Nice Things to Say, Very Nice Ways to Say Very Bad Things. You can call and practice your compliments on the panel if you <laughs> yes, like. That's right. <laughs> all of no being complimented. Here. Exactly. Well, Mary, what type of a compliment would make you uncomfortable? Practically any uh, <laughs> compliments make me uncomfortable. Do you think it's a? I mean, do you think a gen- generation thing or? Uh, no, I think it's. I think it's the way you're brought up. Uh, my my parents didn't compliment us. You know, I got straight A's, and my father said, "Well, of course you did. You're my daughter. All my children are bright," and took all the credit for it. You know, so. I don't remember being complimented by them. I, I, nothing leaps to mind at all that I, they ever complimented me. Uh, do you know people? I don't mean they were uh, cruel, but they uh, just didn't, you know, you were supposed to do all right. And it, why Why bring it up, you know? Well, I think more than that, though, there might be the issue that, that way back then that compliments might have been considered not in bad form, but unnecessary. Yeah. That they just weren't the right, you didn't. Compl- you just didn't compliment people. Well, pe- well, you know, now you see the people with little kids and they say, good job, Justin, you just fastened your shirt. You know, my parents wouldn't say that. They'd say, why did it take you so long? Get over here. You know, you know what's funny is I, when I lived, in, I lived in Germany working in an architecture firm and one of their big complaints to me about Americans, they said, Americans, you just are so positive. No wonder your children are so self-obsessed. And it's exactly that thing. They, they said that, Jackie, you're so positive and complimenting. Of course I finished my work on time. Why, you know, it doesn't merit a positive thing. That's of course, right, those are Germans, so you know. Well, have you ever exactly. given a compliment and felt like, oops, I overdid it? I Has that ever happened to you? Um, no, not, no, I don't think so, no. Yeah, because it's very easy, you know, if you just overstate something slightly to slip into that realm of brown nosing, where it's so grand that the other person, you know, thinks that you must be talking in superlatives and you can't be sincere with something that, you know... Like uh, amazing. I had a, a guy who who did that to me, and it was so awkward. We were on a date, and he he was he wasn't interested in a word that I had to say. He was just interested in you know my exterior he, attributes, and he just the entire time just took it too far. He was like, "Your figure is just really, it's really, it's, it's pretty great." And I was like, "Well, <laughs> awkward. You took it too far. You could just say I looked nice tonight. That's all that you had to go through." You do the, the three reallys, and then like great. <laughs> Especially that voice. Have you ever seen anybody giving compliments to someone and they're kind of outgoing and friendly and then all of a sudden you're like, this person is overdoing it. This is very uh, obsequious to to be doing this. Yes, to professors. I think that your lecture was so amazing today. And you're like, are you kidding me? I was falling asleep. It was not that great. But, I mean... 
Hmm, I teach a class. Has- no one's ever said that. To- no, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's a, here's a question I'm going to throw out. If a stranger compliments you, what's the first thought that goes through your mind? I guess, of course, the old thing is, well, what, what, who's the stranger? Exactly. I, I mean, is it a good-looking man on a subway or a pretty girl at the coffee shop? Or, um, but when would a, when would it be okay, or you'd feel okay about a, a stranger complimenting you? What would be the form that it would take or could take that would you'd say, oh, thanks? If it was something well, exterior, yeah. like I like your purse, and I would say exactly. thank you, exactly, as yeah. opposed something to you're looking casual. good today. Yeah, mm-hmm. something something very casual. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, I I feel good about basically anything. I'm going to be honest there, but maybe it's because you know I'm not that easily sketched out. Well, I mean, <laughs> in casual, I don't mean like, it could be about your body, your physical, your physical image, but. I think it's just the way they say it. Like, if they say, oh, your hair looks really nice. Oh, thanks. But if they're like, your hair looks really nice, it's so shiny. And, <laughs> I mean, if they, again, if they overdo it, just, they have to Gives you some creeps you out. Yes, that exactly. Exactly. That's a great point. <laughs> shiny. <laughs> so when does a compliment seem like an uncomfortable come on by a guy, Claudia? The way they say it. I mean, and if the way they're they trying look? to make this deep eye contact with you or if it it has to be casual it can't that's so true the unblinking compliment where they just stare at you well a guy that <laughs> or if they're too close to you or if you've noticed that they've been staring at you for a while and or if they're really old I mean <laughs> oh. watch out oh. watch out you just crossed the line there okay Claudia well, I mean as a 20 year old you don't want a 65 year old man coming and saying something just send him spot. over to me, Claudia. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. On that same line, though, what about a forty-year-old guy to a twenty-year-old? Old, still, that's still old. Okay. I think because he's still old, old enough to old. be thirty. Thirty is no, not bad at all. I mean, like it, some oh. girls are into that, apparently. Yeah, I mean, I'll know. Hey, gotta get older. Well, what, <laughs> Susan? What would you feel if an eighty-five-year-old man complimented you? Either? Times are really tough <laughs> these days. <laughs> I'm taking where you can get it, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> I say, hmm, hmm. That's right. <laughs> okay. Well, how do social hierarchies affect who you like to give and receive compliments from? I eat. If a boss compliments you, I'm not talking about good work, well-performed. I'm talking about something a little bit more personal, not too, but more personal than that. Um, Does this make you, if you can picture this, I don't know if any of you, Mary, you might have been in this position, but does this make you get a little squirmy, like, ooh, or um, if... um, the produce man compliments you. You know what's funny is I was at a grocery. I was bought my groceries last night, and the grocer in the vegetable section told me that I smelled nice. And That's I didn't know what strange. to do with that. Were um, you in the vegetable section at the time? Yeah, he told you. you yeah, I was that. picking out cucumbers. <laughs> Did you have yeah. perfume on? He loves it. <laughs> I just. I told him that I just washed my clothes, and so it was clean smell. <laughs> I feel like that's one of those ones where you have to know someone to go with that you smell nice because otherwise it just seems like they're smelling you, which is weird. Exactly. <laughs> I felt pretty uncomfortable, to be honest. Yeah. Well, let's go. Ba- let's go on about this social hierarchy, Mary. Um, have you ever been wanted to compliment someone, but you hesitated because it wasn't you felt? Um, yes, yeah, because I work in, I'm old, as uh, Claudia has pointed out, and I work, in, uh, I work in places where there are college students. And sometimes, say, a young college guy comes in our office, he looks really nice. I think it's sort of inappropriate for me to say to this 20-year-old, you look really good today. He'd think, ooh, this old lady is Maybe noticing like my... Maybe that's a nice shirt you're wearing. <laughs> it's different than you look really good today. You're still complimenting yeah. his appearance, uh-huh. if, but it's your word choice. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, yes, that's right. And, and some of them, some of the kids will come in looking terrible for three weeks and suddenly they show up you know, cleaned up. Yeah. <laughs> and you want to make a positive remark because it's appropriate. You, you're trying to positive reinforce it for the workplace, but you can't say, you finally look all right this morning. You know, you know, you're taking a shower finally. Well, well, what you said is a little disconcerting because you're saying that uh, that older people, not old, but older people have to really watch what they say. Well, it's like a hierarchy too, you know, you know, my place in the office. And should I be commenting on the personal appearance of, you know the people. Yeah, or of your of your boss. 
um, gosh, that, I think you are maybe a little bit safer when you say, as Claudia pointed out, your oh, your suit is very becoming. Um, yeah. But do you say, where did you get it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's even <laughs> becoming. Isn't it? <laughs> you know, there's a joke about that, Susan. Yes. Your your shirt is really becoming on you. Of course, if I was on you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you guys. Jason's remark. Warning, warning. Yeah, warning, warning. Good. Now, tell me, do you value a compliment more highly if it comes from someone you care about? I mean, this is a, of course you do, right? Or from someone who, oh, oh okay, here's the here's the contrast. Do you, do you value a compliment more if it comes from someone who you care about or someone who you think is cool and attractive? No, like cool people. Of course. <laughs> Not, forget the person because you care. Because sometimes the people that, you know, you, you you know or whatever, they feel obligated. Like you your know? mother. And so, yeah, like what? <laughs> I mean, no offense, Mom, because I know she's listening. But <laughs> I, know. You know, I know she has to, comp- you know, like mention if I, you know, that I look nice even when I don't, you know? So I sort of take that with a grain of salt. But your mom is probably pretty cool, too. So well, <laughs> moms are only so cool. But, but listen, that, that, that's interesting because when I compliment my daughter, Basically, she'll say, Mom, that's what you're supposed to say. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. that basically what the mother has to say has, what, no value? No, but no. it's just requisite. And, you know, I mean, it's not kind of that above and beyond element that a compliment, or I guess a compliment should have. Okay, how could a parent make a compliment more meaningful to um, to you all? You know what they should do? They should find some way to inverse that statement of I'm very disappointed in you because <laughs> that really gets to yeah, me. Yeah. The opposite of that, whatever the opposite of that is, would mean a lot well, to I'm me. Well, I'm really proud of you. No, it's not the same same weight. Um, oh, as I'm really disappointed. I guess I'm really not disappointed yeah. <laughs> in you. Mm, that doesn't cut it either. <laughs> you finally met my minimal expectations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh, to see that I think coming from a parent, it depends because... I mean, you're saying your mom feels obligated to tell you you look really nice. Whereas my mom, I can't see her telling me, oh, you look really nice. So for her to tell me that shirt looks nice on you, instead of saying you spent more money on another shirt, I would I would like that compliment. So she's not the mom who cried nice looking, basically. Right. Maybe like in your case. <laughs> right, exactly. Where uh, exactly. if you got a compliment, you would feel... I would, I'm relating to what you're saying. I don't remember my mother ever saying I look nice. At all, except one, uh, a few times, like I was getting dressed to go to a prom, you know, and she looked, I could tell by the look on her face that she liked the way that I was presenting myself that particular moment. But she didn't say anything. Right. You know, you could just tell that she was um, happy about it. Well, how often have people had parents say, you're going out in that? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> I still remember back when, and I, I would, it would ruin my evening. Because I I think, did I care what my mother thought? Well, yeah, some part of my brain did care. I remember I was, my mom and I went out to dinner once, and this was right before I went abroad, and I wore a fairly low-cut shirt, and she almost wouldn't let me go abroad because my shirt was low-cut, and she thought that I would get assaulted by people. And she just said she was so disappointed in my judgment and that I looked terrible, and it had a huge impression on me. I, I still don't wear that shirt. I, I haven't worn it since. Oh, well, my mom usually makes comments like that when I'm going out, like, to a club. And so, obviously, she doesn't go to a club. So, she doesn't know what people wear at clubs. So, I don't usually put... I don't really listen to what she's saying. She says, oh, you're going out in that. And it's like a black, backless shirt. I'm like, oh, well. Now, but what, what if you were going off to the first day of a new job and your mother said, you're going to go looking like that? I you know, don't change. You, you would, you would yeah. listen to her. You wouldn't yeah. pay attention to oh. her opinion. Oh, hallelujah. There you go, Susan. Yeah. We got it. We finally got something it. old people know about. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not working. No, but I would have her help me. Well, on that note, uh, we're, we're going to take a break now. When we come back, we're going to be answering our listeners' emails and taking calls, please give us a call at 650-723-9010. We have the book, Very Nice Ways to Say Very Bad Things. I'm Susan Morris. You're listening to What Would Your Mother Say? We'll be right back. You're listening to What Would Your Mother Say? Hi, I'm Susan Morris. If you're just tuning in, this is a segment during which we answer our listeners' emails. Today's panel includes Jackie, Claudia, and Lauren, and the other mother, Mary Morrison. All right, guys, here's the first email. 
My boyfriend just sent me flowers, but they're really crappy looking, wilted and everything. I'm having a hard time getting excited about them, and I'm wondering if I should tell him that he didn't get what he paid for. I don't want to seem ungrateful, but these flowers went straight in the garbage, and I think maybe he and the florist should know. So, what do you think? What are the dangers of critiquing a gift? Well, the whole point of flowers is so, at least Lauren, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. but I think it's so they can give you something that will remind you of them. You know, it's like, and then as they die, they need to do something good for you again to keep you thinking of them. That's kind of how I think of flowers. And so the fact that they were terrible, I think he should know about because his plan backfired. Oh. Claudia, <laughs> well, I, I disagree. I think that I I would be grateful that somebody remembered and took the time to go out and get me flowers or have them sent over because I know there's like some email whatever service mm-hmm. and I mean it's a thought that counts. I don't think that it's a reason for me to be uh, I don't like your flowers. They're ugly. Well right. what about calling the florist and saying uh, you should know that the florist died within a few hours of your sending them and you that's know. a totally different question. That's a consumer question as opposed well, to calling true. up your boyfriend and saying, you sent me these cheap flowers that <laughs> didn't even, you know. No, not cheap. I think you should tell him your thing died You it, immediately. I really I appreciate so. the effort. No. Raise your no. hand if you think that uh, she should co- tell the boyfriend the flowers were crappy. This no. is no. great radio. No. <laughs> no, not no. But then he'll want to know where they are the next day. And you'll be like, oh, I put them in a they- special place. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think she could have dried them. I do that. <laughs> Good call. Good call. Okay. Well, I think there's always the question like that you should ask. What if, he sent you candy? what if he sent you candy you didn't like? Or... Impossible. You didn't like her. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't say anything, but I don't usually wear. It was like expired candy, you know. Okay. Well, listen. Here's here's email number two. I went to a party last weekend and spent a lot of time with this guy who I work with. We ended up making out, but I stopped things because I was worried it would be awkward when we saw each other on the job the following Monday. Too late. Mm, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Too late. But I really like him, so I don't want to give up on the whole thing. What should I do? Uh, this woman's an idiot. Pardon me for oh, saying that. Oh, an idiot. No, she really likes him. That yeah. has everything to do with it. She has well, no good judgment. Well, maybe she had like, a couple of drinks. Well, this is, like, this is like a kickstart to the courtship, and it, it goes from here to like lunch dates. A, a guy right? that you're working with? Yeah. Well, wait like, a second. Yeah, why not? Uh, I mean, what are you going to do? I, I don't have anything against <laughs> like in-office dating, but if you're uh, going to a party... And starting to make out with some guy you hadn't even gone out with before that party, and it works I mean, in your office... Mary, yeah, Mary, Mary, Mary. No, obviously the there were feelings between them before this. This is what this How do you know that? just doesn't spring oh, up. Oh, I think you're both much. I, I think you're being ridiculous. What if it's a person's <laughs> first job, and you don't understand or fully comprehend what the dangers are yeah. or the misfortunes of of getting involved with someone you work with? And let's talk about those because well, yeah. I, I, you know, first job. Who knows? I mean. Also, you know, you've been uprooted. You're in a new place. I think that, you know, it may have been a mistake, but a lot of people meet each other in the workplace and get married, you know? Yeah, but they don't go making out at an office party. Oh, making out married. That's what it says here. I know, there's making out. Making out is like just a few kisses. Come on. I, I'm trying to Florida. feature myself at our Christmas party in my office, <laughs> smooching up the dean. Uh, I mean, wouldn't that be inappropriate behavior? I mean, wouldn't people say this is, this is not what well, no, no, should be this doing? Isn't a dean. This is This is a I think so. <laughs> people would be flabbergasted. Well, not with your well, new haircut. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to check this out. But Mary, we she didn't. This this young woman didn't start necking or making out or kissing. Ne- um, Necking. Old lady. (laughs) Okay, but what are some of the dangers? I mean, what are some of the rewards of of, 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 um, getting involved with someone at work? Proximity. Yeah, it's easy. (laughs) Right, but it's also problematic because other people might, you know, look at it negatively. Or if he's higher... Yeah, or she's higher than, or she is. I mean, anything that she does. Sexual suits are really a danger, seriously. So, I mean, but... In what if her case, equal? They, since she's asking what she should do and the deed is done, what I think the best she could do is just try to act as normal as possible around him and around everybody else and not bring up that incident anywhere at work. The, the big danger, as I see it, is you know what happens when they break up. Because things are going to be 
Exactly. Oh, right. Oh, right. While they're going out. And they both like each other. But when, you know, that, that relationship ends and when all that, you know, turbulence occurs, that's when it gets awkward. And that's why there's a whole college adage of, you know, no dorm cest, which means don't yeah. date anyone in your yeah. dorm. Because if you break up and you will inevitably break up, you know, you're going to still have to live with that person or go to work with them or remain in a con- confined area with them. That's and and the question is, is he working your same unit? Is he on your same yeah. team, as it were? Or is he, you both work for Google and there's thousands of people there. I mean, that's, is a different issue. Well, well let's know. say that they are on the same team. I mean, like they, you know, don't sit on each other's laps, but they're very close. <laughs> uh, it's just bad. Now, why did you all laugh when I said if I would, I did it, it'd be inappropriate because this person's younger. It's, it, it is appropriate. It's okay. I mean, the same behavior. Well, I mean, no, but you were talking about <laughs> you making out with snog. the dean. Well, <laughs> how do we know that this isn't exactly this guy I work with? He's the guy I work with. I mean, Mary, did you write this email? No, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh. I did not. Oh, well, I, I, I think it's hard when you're physically attracted to someone and... You know, then you have a lot in common. You're doing the same work, for goodness sakes. I mean, it's a natural. It's a natural. I think it's really hard, I, I would imagine, tell me, to say, oops, we can't get together. We can't go out because of this. No, but that's... that's I don't that's think that was the issue. The issue was the way they this went about was the party. Because I've dated somebody at work. But I didn't make out with him at a party. Like he asked me out people. to dinner, uh-huh. and we went on a date, and then things went from there. I wasn't just like drinking, and then I made out with him, and then I had to see him the next morning. The hard thing about this, I think, especially especially because of the way that workplaces have sort of evolved, there be there's social networks, and so you know you a lot like for example, Google's a great example. You have breakfast, lunch, and dinner there. You all go to the same parties together. It's like college part two, basically. You know, no, on steroids. On steroids. <laughs> well, and I'm sorry. I think there's a double standard here. I think the, I'm sorry to say this. I wish there weren't, but I think that she'd get a reputation in the office workplace, and he wouldn't have the same reputation. That's and true. it would be block her if she wanted to go ahead. I really think so. Well, that is that a generation thing, or do you all agree with that? Do you see that as being a problem? Mm, no, I could see that as being a problem. Yeah, because I agree. <laughs> you agree? Yeah, probably. But, I mean, especially if it was pretty wild making out at this party. I guess we'd have to quantify how private they were about it and how extreme things got, and if there was any whipped cream involved. <laughs> oh, gosh. But, <laughs> Lauren. You know, that, well, that's a good point, Lauren. Well, now listen. <laughs> <laughs> that comment well, goes with your dirty old men goatee that you are <laughs> currently growing. Oh, thank you for the compliment, Jack. You're welcome. It makes me feel uh, better about myself. But that was... Okay, well, <laughs> listen. Here, here's an email from Lisa. I'm 22, and I still haven't had an orgasm. I've had a boyfriend for two years, and I've been pretending the whole time. I kept thinking that it would happen at some point. Now I'm wondering if there's something wrong with me. What's wrong with a boyfriend? Okay, well, <laughs> I I don't know about the boyfriend, but I think her mistake was faking it. Because okay. now he yeah. thinks that what he's doing is right, and so he's going to keep doing it because he thinks it's working, and obviously it's not. So, I mean, I think then... From the very beginning, you have to say, you know what, this isn't working. Can we try something else? How about, I mean, you have to be open. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, how hard is it to be open um, with someone you're dating about the details of your sexual activity? Well, if you're having sex, you, I mean, there should be some openness. Maybe, maybe, naked, maybe, like, maybe, well. maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Literally open, you know, but the thing, oh. that is, the thing that surprises me, she says, I haven't ever had an orgasm. And so I'm wondering if she's putting a little bit too much on the boyfriend. I think really you should like you know know thyself prior to expecting him to be able to do anything for you. Yeah, definitely. You know. Hmm. So okay. I think that's a little unrealistic that she's like, well, I have no idea what's going on down there, but you should be able to do something about it. You know. Does it? Well, what does it say about the relationship that she hasn't said anything? Well, the fact that she's lying to him. In effect, I mean, right. she's been lying. Well, she's she not being. I don't know. How common is this? Yeah, how Wait, common is this? Extremely lower. Let's face yeah, it. This is extremely <laughs> common. You've been a victim, probably. Oh, probably. Are you serious? <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think it happens a lot. I mean, okay, okay. I want to stop. Okay, it sounds to me <laughs> this is that going in a bad direction. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. I'm curious because I mean, I asked what a minute or two ago about actually discussing the details of one's sexual activity. I mean, it, it's come out in earlier shows that. You know, people have get together and they have sex, and how well they know each other is problematic in some cases, and and how easy it is to talk about certain things about your sexual activity could be hard. 
Is it? But for two years? We're talking about two well, years. Well, no, I'm, I'm talking more philosophically now, though, oh. about, um, you know, being comfortable having a dialogue with your partner about the what what's going on. It seems to me that that means a certain amount of sophistication and, and confidence. Well, personally, I mean, if I'm having sex with this person, I expect to be able to have a conversation and be completely honest with him. This is me. I mean, this is, I know there's like a lot of people who have sex with after the first date, whatever. Willy-nilly. Right. And they don't, and they're not. All right. But I mean, in her case, again, two years, uh, I think she should be able to tell him. And again, as I already mentioned, I already, her mistake was not telling him from the very beginning, this isn't working. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Well, all right, here's another email. Uh, this guy seemed really interested in me until we had sex. Now he doesn't give me the time of day. Is there any way I can turn this around again? This is the oldest story in the books. No, no. This person obviously hasn't been listening to the show because we talk about this at least every other. <laughs> <laughs> no. This Lauren, you're going on since the beginning of time. <laughs> well, uh, Oh, okay. Is it going on more today than it it used to? I don't think so. Is there? You don't think it's going on more today? You think you? Wait, really? How good of a barometer is Mary for <laughs> for our youth culture? Oh God, that came out. <laughs> well, I, I just know how common it used to be. Well, Mary is probably it's it probably pretty similar. I mean, I would say so. Some things haven't changed. I mean, there are guys who you know. Are in it for one thing, and and that's it, and and that's the case with this guy. I think she should just maybe let it go, and if he really is interested, and not just sex, he'll come and try to have a conversation with her rather than try to come and get her in bed. Wait, on the flip side of that, though, you have to be the kind of person that he would want to have a conversation with. I mean, if you're one-dimensional, equally one-dimensional, I mean, there's really nothing for either of you other than what happened. You know, I mean, I think there's there's equal responsibility in that case, almost. But she's trying to get a hold of him. But I mean, right. she she has to she has to be an interesting person. She has to be three dimensional. My question is, why does she want to? Why, if he acts this way toward her, why does she want to turn it around? I mean, he's he's obviously not a person that you want to have a long term relationship if he treats you this way from the beginning. Well, is there anything a woman can do or a man can do before the sex act that kind of could confirm that there is something there? Or is, are people going to lie then because, you know, they said, oh, you know, let's just move this forward. Let's not get bogged down in details. Well, they're, they're, I'm looking at the young people here because, they, you know, they, they're the ones who have more. Uh, you never, you, you, you wouldn't say, well, we've got about 30 seconds, so we'll leave that <laughs> until next week. Oh. How does that sound? <laughs> I wanna, it's time to say goodbye. I want to thank all of you for being on the show. And now listen to my compliment. You're a terrific panel, engaged, amusing, and thoughtful. Oh, well, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for coming on. For the record, the opinions you hear on What Would Your Mother Say do not represent those of KZSU or Stanford University. They're not intended to be a substitute for professional advice and or counseling.